1 Corinthians 9, we'll begin with verse 1. Paul starts off with some questions. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not apostle unto others, yea, doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? The word power is the word exousia, which means the, the, the power to choose. And it's used at least four times perhaps in this chapter. He says, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas, or I only, and Barnabas? Have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a war for any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox, that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he altogether for our sakes? Or for, uh, for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of the hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so... Hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now there's a lot here. And as you study this passage, uh, the people that Paul was writing to had a very strong familiarity of the Old Testament. For some of you reading this who perhaps have uh, had a lot of questions about this passage of Scripture... Uh, you, you really won't understand it until you dig deep into some of the Old Testament Scriptures, which will give you kind of a superficial uh, understanding of tonight. I'm not going to go deep into those because I want to get to the main principle. But uh, Paul also uses a number of metaphors in this passage. Notice verse 7. In verse 7, he uses uh, some metaphors that I'm taking tonight as the title of the message. The title we're looking at comes out of verse 7. Warfare, vineyards, flocks, and oxen. As we weave that together with all the questions Paul has asked, they all come together. They all make sense. They all correlate. Anytime you read Scripture and there's a series of questions like what Paul's done, and he's done this a lot in the book of 1 Corinthians, it ties around an underlying issue that was presented to him 
that people were struggling with and he wanted to address, they knew what the right answer is. Because remember now, they wrote to him about certain issues that either had not been taught or had been taught, but things were happening and now he had to come back and correct bad thinking or some bad teaching they heard. And uh, they had been taught some things. And I, I find it very, very encouraging that the entire, most of the ninth chapter really is addressing an area that perhaps we only bring up one or two times a year in a church, but it deals with an area that we need to know about. And I'm looking forward to preaching that tonight and help us learn some things. And, you know, I, I wanted to be said of our church that, that this is a church where uh, men and women and boys and girls know that they're learning the Bible, the Word of God. And that you're, able to, that you're able to gravitate from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. You're maturing in it. But not just for knowledge. One of, one of my pet peeves I have is people wanting to study the Bible for pure knowledge's sake. And wanting to get into fruitless discussions about things that ha- will not get us sold to heaven. And it's more important, while you learn the knowledge, you realize also that it needs to break your heart. Because the Bible encourages us that we need to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And I just found a lot of the intellectuals that, are, that we find in Christianity, and even intellectuals in our Baptist movement, have a tendency to be so intellectualized, they forget they need to get back to brass tacks, and they forget they need to get back to place where they need to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And so what we see tonight, it's all good for, for knowledge and understanding what Paul's saying, but Paul never meant for this to be difficult. In fact, none of the scripture was written was ever written to be difficult. It was always written for the practical man, the, the layman, if you would, the person who's not going to Bible college, the person who's not going to a seminary of some kind, the person who's going to read the Bible and learn it. And so we need to just give practical application, and I pray that tonight we'll do that. Now, Father, bless your word. Sanctify us through thy truth. Give understanding. I need help tonight. Uh, this is a passage I've taught many years ago before, but not in the same way that I'm going to teach it tonight. And I pray this evening you help me to teach, but yeah, I pray you help me to preach. I pray that tonight the Lord people don't fall asleep. I pray that tonight that we'll stay alert and active and taking notes and jotting things down. And I pray we'll be good students of the Word of God. The Bible tells us to study to show ourselves approved unto God. And I'm reminded that the word for, for study is the word spudazo, which means we're to labor. And we're to labor in the Word and we're to labor in our study. We're to labor in our meditations tonight. And we don't want to take this for granted. And Lord, as we look forward to, uh, Lord, in-person services, I pray as a church we not take for granted Lord, uh, the church, and I pray we not take for granted being in church. And I pray for many of our, fam- our church family, perhaps you are in an at-risk category because of health, and because of age, because of uh, maybe other concerns or people they care for, and they will not be able to be here for these next few Sundays. God, I pray that the live stream services will continue to be a blessing to them, but I pray that they have a longing in their heart. In fact, I'm praying right now that everyone in our church that, that, that has come through this church pre-March 15th will have a longing in their heart to get back to church, and the moment they step back on the campus, God, I pray there will be tears in their eyes. I pray there will be a longing in their heart to worship the living God in person and to do that which is real and not get used to virtual church and think that's the only way we do church. And God, I pray for our people just to step out in faith and trust God. And we pray for protection. And again, as we've advocated and we prayed, we prayed for, we're praying that nobody would get COVID-19 by coming to church here. And we pray that our church would be a model for safe assembly. Tonight, it doesn't change what we've done. We've tried, Lord, for all these weeks. The best we know how is through all of our, through the preaching services and our, uh, our, our Zoom classes and, and, uh, and, our, and our YouTube pre-recordings. We've, we've tried to emphasize the preaching, teaching of your word, that we're not, we're not changing anything and, and people can expect they're going to get the word of God. And I pray tonight, the Lord, we not take any of the things that you've given us for granted, but Lord, we pray to come with a great appetite and desire to be filled with the word of God. Holy Spirit, have your way. 
May your ministry not be hindered by any means. And we'll thank you tonight for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated at home and here at the church. Last week, we spent some time, and I hope if you didn't get a chance to review it, that you probably ought to watch the message uh, if you didn't see it or watch it again. We spent some time looking at 1 Corinthians 8 on the subject of Christian liberty. Now, 1 Corinthians 8, and believe it or not, chapter 9 and chapter 10 deal with this matter of Christian liberty, okay? And uh, I'm not going to get into all that today because i got a lot of things to talk about this evening. But I did say this. I said last week one of the key principles, takeaways, is that our knowledge of the Scripture, our knowledge of Bible principles must be balanced by love. And that was one of the things Paul was talking about there. We may, we may, some of us will mature and grow in a place where it's doing, well, we, have, we understand the Bible, and like in his case, it was eating meats offered to idols, that, that he had a conscience of realizing it didn't bother him. He said the meat is nothing, and he said we can eat it, and it has, it has no bearing. We don't worship the meat, and we can eat it. He says meat is nothing nothing, but he said, uh, but he also realized there were believers who had a weak conscience. They were not fully developed in, in the work of grace, and so they found because they came out of a pagan, pagan background, they just felt very offended and very uncomfortable about Christians who were eating meat offered to idols, and of course, there was a principle laid out there in terms of just our rights and so forth like that, and uh, Paul just said, you know what? We have to be very careful that though we have a conscience, we know that it's not a, it's not a sin and wrong. But for the other believer who's offended or hurt by that, or it could be a stumbling block to them, then at that point it becomes a sin, and we must take the high road. And he said in verse chapter uh, eight. Verse 13, the high road to take is realizing if my meat, if meat makes my brother defend, he says, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother defend. Paul said, I have every right to do so. I have every right to eat that meat offered to an idol. I have every right to sit at a banquet where it was offered, but I'm not going to do that. If it will make my brother to offend him, if it will be a stumbling block to him, if it will wound his conscience, I will not do such a thing. Now, we get to chapter 9. Chapter 9, there's two things here. You want to write this down. Please write this down tonight, okay? Number one, we're going to see in this chapter um, Paul continuing the theme of Christian liberty. And he uses himself an example in this passage in the first 19 verses of volunteering, voluntarily limiting his personal liberties. Now, one of the things we have to learn, and Paul emphasizes, we, we, we get this, and I'm thankful how the Holy Spirit weaved this. That the Holy Spirit is bringing us to understanding the subject of Christian liberties, what we can do, but under the right circumstances. And it's in chapters 8, 9, and 10 before we get to chapter 13, which is a chapter in love. And you know, one of the hardest things, most difficult thing for a church to do, and if it does what I'm going to say tonight, it's a mature church. It's the church that God blesses. It's a church that the hand of God is on. It's a church that has learned to have love without any reservations for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can get so worldly, I hate to say that, we can get so worldly because of where we work, because of our upbringing, because you might be just biased to begin with, and other things like that, that there are some in our midst, our church and other churches, you just get easily perturbed, you get easily offended, you have little patience. And I'll just give you one. I, I've heard this in preacher circles and preacher says public, where they say, well, I don't have a strong gift of mercies because whatever that, and, and they make a joke. I'll be real honest with you, that's not a joke. 
To say you don't have a strong gift of mercies and joke about it, that is, that is a sin. You don't, may not have a strong gift of mercy. That doesn't give you anything. And I, when I say that's a problem because when it's said in public in that context, Christians who aren't even thinking think that's cute, and they go around because they have an abrasive personality. They say, well, I don't have a strong gift of mercy, and they use that to justify having a bad attitude. I'm going to tell you something tonight. Having a bad attitude grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And having a bad attitude leads, lends itself to sins of the Spirit that God is not blessed with. And I'll tell you, most churches don't need a revival in terms of standards. And most churches don't need a revival about knowing about soul winning. And most churches don't need a revival about knowing how to participate in faith promised missions. But most churches do need a revival in understanding 1 Corinthians 13 love of knowing what Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you. And I say that tonight because when we reassemble, those who have a pet peeve about something, who get easy irritated, or you've got a bias somewhere, or you've got an attitude problem or chip on your shoulder, and you want to talk, flaunt that around the church, I'm going to tell you tonight, you should not come back to church with an attitude like that. You should not serve on a church staff with an attitude like that. You should not serve in any capacity, be a teacher, deacon, or anything like that. You shouldn't even be a pastor. If you're going to walk around with a chip on your shoulder, an attitude in your heart, you should have an attitude saying, you know what, if it makes my brother offend, I ought to realize that I grieve the heart of God. And it's a sin before Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know where that came from. That wasn't in my notes, but, you know, it's what it is. But Paul gave this tonight, chapter 9, as an example of voluntarily limiting his personal liberties. Secondly, write this down. <clears throat> he prioritizes in chapter 9, he does an incredible job. And I want all our staff and deacons and senior Sunday school teachers, you ought to take some good notes on this tonight if you've never studied this passage out. He's given us, and those of you who have a burden with me, I, the Lord worked in my heart this today on a, a verse I read on church planting. Right now my mind's just kind of buzzing right now. My heart's just buzzing about church planting right now. But he, he, prioritized, he prioritized in this chapter the responsibility of the local church in financially and physically caring for those who labor among them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over these next few weeks in one or more messages, I'm going to take some time and give you a miniature practical theology. I'm leading some men right now trying to understand some things like that. A miniature practical theology of the mechanics of the local church. Things that even some of our guys I hang around with in church don't even understand goes on. And right now in chapter 9, the church has to understand its role, its responsibility financially in caring for those who labor in the gospel. When we read the Old Testament, the Jews had a good understanding of that. You have to remember as we begin this chapter tonight, Paul is setting the groundwork for the local church in this matter. I mean, it's just, there were a lot of practices that were, were just, they were, the Gentiles really weren't sure because they had different ideas and things. And so, remember the church at Corinth, like every church Paul started, was comprised of Jewish and Gentile believers. They came from different backgrounds. They came from different, hey, some of you are my good friends in this church. Some of you come from other churches, like kind faith. But I think you learned that perhaps the church was not 
uh, probably where heritage is at, and I'm not saying in a bad way, I'm not being condescending on the church, but you found out that perhaps you weren't trained or taught in certain matters of giving. You weren't trained or taught to exercise faith. You never had those opportunities, and you came here, and God has grown you in grace, and you've had an opportunity to do that. And, you know, I was just sharing with, with some, some men last night that uh, it's amazing when you look at between 2012 and, and 2018, I think it was, when we've gotten, you know, for all the money that was been raised on, on the, uh, for the church and the buildings that have gone up that we've enjoyed and, and, and all of that. I mean, an amazing short period of time. And we're not a super large church in many, many ways. And we're not a wealthy church in many means. But the incredible sacrifice and giving and the timeliness that went into that. I mean, there's, there's just something said about the great financial responsibility the church undertook on that. But, but we have to remind ourselves tonight that financial responsibility is not spot on the moment or, or, or if you would, a seasonal type of program that we do. It's, it's an ongoing thing we do as a church there. The church is a, the ministry, the church is multifaceted. and demands careful attention in all areas. For instance, I'm just going to give you a roll, roll, uh, run off a bunch of things I want you to think about. Uh, when you thought, think about a church, there's a starting point of the church. There's many intricacies to the starting point of a church. There's the vision casting, the goals of the church. Vision casting is, is, is constantly a moving target. Vision casting constantly ha- is, has alterations and changes. There's goals of the church, there's short-term, long-term goals. They're the service of the church. And for many of you who, who just come to church, you just think it all happens. It just, you know, you just come in and everything's done for you. There's just a lot that goes on. There's the service of the church. And every staff member who serves understands there's a lot of intricacies to the church. And it's constantly it's a moving target. There's preaching schedules. There's teaching schedules. There's the spiritual emphasis. There's always trying to fine-tune the church and making sure, do we have a spiritual emphasis? I've, I grew up in a church where they just kind of did things and people were good organizers. But there just seemed to be something lacking in terms of into the church in terms of the spiritual emphasis that the church is at. And there has to be a constant emphasis on the spiritual things. There's the soul winning. There's the discipleship and spiritual development of the church. I mean, the church has to be constantly on that. There's the expanding ministries of the church, such as Sunday school. There are times like what we went through, which we could have never planned for, where a COVID-19 situation comes in, a pandemic, if you would, and it's completely changed how we've done ministry and things. And yet, we thank God in our some of, most of our core areas that, that the Lord has been so gracious and God's people have been so good. But I think that I think because of that many of God's people paid attention to the preaching services and they really are serious about God and they're growing in the faith and that they, they, they undertook this situation, realized this is my church and I've got to do my part there. There's the leadership development for ministry staffing, extensions and church planning. We are constantly in this mode of leadership development. It's one thing to learn how to be a leader. It's another thing to realize we're building leaders and leaders have to continue to expand and learn things. There are many facets of the people in these People needs are constantly changing. You know, whether it's 500 people or 5,000 people, the dynamics of the people needs are all different and changing. They're constantly changing. There's the organization of the church. There's the administration of the church. There's the flow chart of the church, which that can change there. There's the organizational flow chart of the church. There's a constant emphasis on being evangelistic, so winning, and missions-minded. We're just spending some time today working on some things that God gave us a mind on for our missions conference. And we're going we're gonna to tie up some loose ends on that next week and get, tell you about some things we're going to do about our missions conference this fall. There's the, there's the facility needs, and that's a constantly changing thing. And we started off when we came to this property. By the way, I'm going to just say this. I believe God trusts us with this property early on because I think there, were just a, there was a small handful of people when we were renting space, and uh, we, had a, we had really, really a, 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 you know, two, two different locations we were at that we had to take care of and do a lot of. I think God saw we were 
serious and we're faithful about it. And I think God blessed that and allowed us to be in this property here. And God just challenges with that, but it's a constant need. I mean, we've gone from caring for 23,000, maintaining 23,000 square feet of space now to 45,000. Uh, we're basically having to do a lot more things here. Our people are taking uh, uh, the bull by the horns for the sanitization of the church uh, to keep things safe around here. I mean, there's just this constant needs around here. There are the faith needs and opportunities. I'm always conscious and praying over, Lord, how can we stretch the faith of our church? How do we stretch the faith of our children? I'm going to tell you something tonight. I want our children and our, and our teenagers and our college students in our church, I want them to learn not just to follow the faith or pastor. I want them to be ex- expecting as we start every year, what are we going to do in faith this year? I want our young couples to be thinking about what are we going to do in faith this year? I mean, these are constant expanding needs. And then there are the financial needs of the church. You know, when we're, that's a whole different matter. We've got to plan over and think about and encourage about tithing and offerings and budgeting. And, and, and sometimes you're, you're walking eggshells because some are having challenges about tithing and may have, may have, may have just fallen behind in that area and, then, and just try to lovingly take responsibility. Then. And I have, a, I have a different approach than most other pastors. I, I, I feel very strongly that part of the pastor's oversight includes in the tithing area. And that's a very uncomfortable area to talk to people about when, they, when they're struggling that. But you have to do that. And, and that's just some of the things we work on there. By the way, I want to just say here tonight, are you tithing? Are you responsible right now in that? Don't expect God to shine his face if you're not there. Read Malachi chapter 3. It's all right there. But we must keep foremost in mind, and this is all the prelude before I get into the meat of the message. We must keep foremost in mind that the most important asset of the church is the people. It's not the facilities. It's not the vehicles. It's the people. Andrew Carnegie said this many years ago. He said, if you burn down all my buildings, you burn down all my, my companies, just give me back the people that have been with me and I'll get it started, I'll work it back up again. And we have to remind ourselves the most important asset is the people. Now we have great people in our church. We have good people in our church. We've got loving people. We've got, we've got a chemistry here that God has given us. And whether you're new to the church or you've been here for a long time, whether you just know people because you come to church and shake their hands, you think they're great people, or they look pretty good because they stand behind a podium and they sound very articulate, but you don't know whether or not they got character or not. Regardless of who it is, I remind everybody tonight, the most important aspect of the church is the people. Now, churches flow like most organizations. It's got to have leadership and direction. We do it, we know, we look at ministry from the top down. You've got the pastor, and I hold very strongly to a biblical position that you have one pastor for the church. We don't, I don't hold, and I ingrain in our staff, and I ingrain with our deacons, and I ingrain with our key men. We don't hold to an equal elder rule. We don't hold to an elder rule. I don't believe that's biblical. That's a Presbyterian model. That is not a biblical Baptist model. I said that's not a biblical Baptist model. There's the full-time staff who comes alongside of the pastor. There are deacons and churches that have decided to have deacons. There are the volunteers, the unpaid volunteers, teachers in our church, teachers, sponsors, helpers, a myriad of people. I think our largest uh, pool of volunteers is our nursery ministry, which right now we don't have a nursery yet, but we're getting, it's coming back. 
And then they're members and attendees. Brother, sister, Christ, I want to tell you, there's a lot of moving pieces with that. So even though Paul taught this principle, this financial, these financial principles to the church at Corinth, when he was with them, he had to teach it again. I want you to notice some things tonight about the financial responsibility of a church in caring for the full-time workers of its church. I've entitled this message out of verse 7, Warfare, Vineyards, Flocks, and Oxen. First of all, notice number one, the privilege of the ministry. Look at verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? The first three questions, you know what he's doing there? He's asking questions to validate his apostleship. An apostle had to have seen the risen Lord. An apostle, which the very word means, a set one on a mission. He is, the apostles were the original church planters. The apostles were all preachers. When Jesus called those men to him in Matthew chapter 10, they were all preachers, even Judas, believe it or not. They were all commissioned to be church planters. You see that in Matthew 10. Paul had a unique experience. He got his salvation and his calling the same day, same time. Notice the last question in verse 1. Paul said, are ye not, are not ye my work in the Lord? And I think Paul, as he asked that question, did so with a humble pride. That's kind of an oxymoron, right? Humble pride. But I think with a, I think if you would, in the sense that um, he was rejoicing that he had the privilege to go to Corinth, a very difficult city, to plant that church there, and the fruit of that church are the people he's writing to here in chapter 9. For Paul, serving the Lord full-time in ministry was a joy. I'm going to say to everyone here that's watching tonight, here in the room with me, those watching my live stream, it's a privilege to serve the Lord. It's a privilege to serve Jesus Christ full-time. It's a privilege to serve Jesus Christ part-time. It's a privilege to serve Jesus Christ all the time. Amen. It's a privilege. For Paul, it was a joy. In 1 Timothy 1.12, it was a joy to him because he prioritized being faithful. I like what he said in 1 Timothy 1.12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me. In other words, he's given me the capability. He's given me the calling. He's given me the gift sets. He's given me the power who has enabled me. For that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. God saw some things in Paul even before he got saved. And God did some things with him during those three years he went to Arabia. And God did some things with him as he was being discipled. You read about his discipleship there in, down in Damascus with the brethren there, there in, in Acts chapter 9. It always thrills my heart when I read that. And God saw a man that was faithful. When I say faithful, I, he was faithful in his spiritual life. He was faithful in his relationships. He was faithful in his tasks. He was faithful in giving the gospel. Faithful people have initiative. 
Faithful people are there, rain or shine. Faithful people are there no matter if everybody else quits. Faithful people are there all the time. Faithful people, you don't have to ask them. They're there. They're the first ones to volunteer. Faithful people don't walk around like a peacock strutting their tails. They are there humble. Listen, whether they've been saved one year or saved 30 years, they're always the same. They'll say, preacher, count me in. Pastor, I'm there. They don't have this attitude, well, you know I'm there for you already. They just come out and say, out of humility, they know that's what they're supposed to do. Hey, listen, some of us have been saved for a long time. We need to get recalibrated. We need to go through the grinder one more time. You need a ministry refresher course to remind you that humility that you had in the early days, you still need today. And if you've lost that humility, you need to get it back. Paul is saying here, God found him faithful. Part of faithfulness is being humble. Part of faithfulness is being there. Part of faithful is just saying, you know what? I may not like something, but it's not a big deal to be divisive over. I'm going to love Jesus Christ and serve him only there. He said, God has counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. And for those who are in the ministry, you ought to thank God tonight that someone looked at you and God looked at you and said, you're faithful and I'm going to put you there. Let us not lose our faithfulness to serving God in the ministry. Secondly, it was a privilege because of the plurality of fruit that he had. He said in verse 1, are not ye my work in the Lord? He said, boy, in verse 2, this gets me fired up. The latter part of verse 2. He said, <clears throat> The seal, the mark, the evidence for the seal of my apostleship are ye in the Lord. Here's the proof. He had the fruit of it. He told the church of Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19, 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? He said, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Look what he said here. For ye are our glory and joy. <clears throat> the plurality of fruit. Last few years, California has been a tough place to live in. It's expensive. And we've had families that have relocated. They've been my fruit in the Lord. I think of the Quant family, very first time they came to church. They sat in my office. James, Brother James said, Pastor, Vanessa needs to share something with you. And she struggled with her eternal security. Now those of you who don't struggle with it, you have forgotten that people who do struggle with it, it's a burden. It's a burden. They can't sleep at night. And I'm so thankful on those meetings we had. And eventually she went into discipleship. How God gave her her eternal security through his word. I think of Brenda Cook. My wife and I were out so winning one Saturday morning and led her to Christ. Got her husband to come to church. Found out he got saved in a Southern Baptist church out in Richmond that one time was a thriving church in that area. I actually had visited that church uh, when, when they were still, the, the, back in the day when Bailey Smith and guys like that were so proud. We went there to go hear Bailey Smith preach and, and so forth. But I remember that. And I said, yeah, I remember that church. That's where you went. I remember being in an evening service right after I finished preaching and my, my cell phone went off. And I went off into that little room where the choir normally would meet. I went off the, the main auditorium off the pulpit. And I normally wouldn't take the call. I didn't recognize it, but I saw it was a San Leandro number. And I said, hello. And the lady said, is this Pastor Fong? And I said, yes. 
She said, uh, I need to tell you something because it's very hard. She said, you know George Cook? I said, what about George? She said, George just passed away of a heart attack. He was at the Coliseum. He was taking a BART train back at the Coliseum BART station, and he grabbed, grabbed his chest. He fell over backwards. He hit the concrete. He died of a heart attack right there on the spot. And I remember going to Brenda's house that night and spending some time with my wife and I, going to see Brenda and helping her through that. And I remember not, not long after that, a few months later, a year later or so, uh, her father, who I led to Christ in the hospital, in, in Kaiser Hospital, Antioch, and then finding out that, her, that her, and her father was so happy he got saved. And then her father passed away and went home to be with the Lord and then picking up, uh, picking up Brenda on a Memorial Day. Just for some reason, my wife and I did not go anywhere. Uh, typically, we hang out with people, but we did not go anywhere. We kind of studied around the house and were just relaxing for a little bit there. I don't know about relaxing. I guess I was preparing for service or something like that. But anyway, and we got a call, and, and we, I told my wife, let's get in the car. We're going to go get Brenda and go out to Antioch to her dad's house and take care of that. We spent the evening there on that. I mean, that's, and now she's over in Oregon, still watching by live stream. I still, every time I send my messages out, when I'm done with my messages, I send to Brother Vaughn and Erica, my wife, and others, and our translators, and a string of people. I, and Brenda's right on that, on, that, on that string, and she still gets my messages. I emailed her not too long ago, and she's a pastor. She still gets the messages, and I read them, and they're a blessing to me. And then now we have uh, one of our sweet ladies, Lisa Felder, who we have the privilege. Brother Justin was out door knocking. He was so winning several years ago, and uh, met Lisa, engaged her in conversation, invited her to church. She came that following Sunday. I remember that Sunday morning when uh, there was just back in the, the old building. I remember people were lining up there. It was one of those Sunday mornings back, and, and, and that time people did that. Now, just because the way this building's configured, they don't do it anymore, but they lined up, and it was one of those days when just, it was just a lot of people lining up to want to talk and things, and, and I, I noticed this lady waiting in the background there, and she was new to the church, and I said, okay, I must have did something wrong, because she's waited 30 minutes to want to talk to me, and I was, I was prepared she was going to yell at me or something like that there, and she came up with a very dignified lady. Those of you know Lisa, very dignified lady, very, 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 very refined, dignified lady, and she said, Pastor Fong, she says, your son Justin invited me to church. I said, oh, I praise the Lord for that. And she said, I just wanted to ask you something. She said, you know, and she started crying. She says, you know, you taught through the Bible. I've never heard preaching like that. And I said, okay, what did I say wrong? She said, no, no, no. She said, you went verse by verse. She said, I learned more about the Bible today than I have 30 years in the Baptist church I went to in San Francisco. And not long after that, just a few days later, my wife and I went to see her. She was not ready for us and kind of dropped in on her. But I thank God that she got saved. And, and we asked that million-dollar question, if you die today, you know for sure you're going to heaven. And she cried like a baby. She said, I don't know. And that's when we found out she'd been in church for all these years and what church was. I even know who the pastor was and things. It's just crazy stuff there. But Lisa's relocating to be with family in Atlanta, Georgia. And we had another family that recently relocated. I mean, just like that. But I'll tell you this. I say all that to say this. That's our fruit in the Lord. That's the joy of the ministry. And, you know, there's something about people relocating. I hate to see them. I think of the Meyerhoffers who were back in Tennessee, and they're, the, they're, church, they're, pre, they're now attending a church of a, of a preacher I was supposed to preach for this year, but uh, that didn't work out there. It couldn't work into my schedule. And I found out that, that they were by that preacher, and I got him with, uh, with this, this good preacher there with, with, in his church there, Brother Finley Kershaw. You know, everywhere people go when they leave our church because they have to move, a piece of Heritage Baptist Church goes with them. I don't like to see people leave, but there are joy in our crown. I like to see people added to the church. There are joy in our crown. Paul says it's our privilege to serve the Lord in ministry. Let me just say this before I move on. In the ministry, <coughs> in the ministry, the victories always outweigh the losses. The fruit outweighs the frustrations. The opportunities outweigh the obstacles. And the people outweigh the problems. Never forget that. And so tonight, 
We see the privilege of ministry quickly because i got a lot of ground to cover and to get finished tonight. Number two, I want you to see the problem. The problem here Paul is dealing with is the churches needing to take financial responsibility for, uh, for their full-time workers, for their preachers. Now Paul, when he was there, and you'll see this in this passage, Paul had every right to expect the church to take care of him. He had every right to take care of that. He justifies this here. He validates that. But you have to understand the background. You've got Gentiles and Jews. William Barclay said in his, in his, his writings on this, he said that the Greeks despised manual labor. The Greeks hired servants to do all their things because the Greeks basically wanted to uh, basically enjoy the games. They wanted to do more leisure because that's where they were at in Corinth. The Athenians loved those kind of things. And so they divided men into two classes, the cultured and the hewers of wood and drawers of water. That's what they did. So you had that group with that mindset that, you know what, uh, you know, we, we, have, we have slaves do these things. And then the Jews, on the other hand, they believed and gave prominence to honest labor. Now, the Jews believed that every young man needed to learn a trade. They taught that their young men had to learn a trade. They learned something there. Paul learned tent making. Jesus, Jesus was, was, a, was a carpenter. Peter and John were fishermen. And so, a, a man was taught as a young boy that learned, learned something to support yourself. That's still a good idea. But there were some in the Jewish culture, as men became rabbis, they had this philosophy, well, why do we need to pay you? Be bivocational. And so, the rabbis, following Old Testament teaching that Paul reinforces here, taught it was meritorious to take care of the rabbis. So the problem at hand, you want to write this down, is that there was an inconsistent practice of supporting the pastors and full-time servants of God. Not just at Corinth, but throughout the New Testament. Pastors and preachers had to be bivocational. I'll tell you today, it's hard being bivocational today. It was really hard being bivocational back in those days. Because they didn't have public transportation. They didn't have the technology. I mean, basically, everything they did was manual labor. And if you did manual labor, per se, you know, the Greeks were kind of suspicious about that. And the Greeks kind of looked down. It's kind of like this. Uh, when when we've, been in, we've been in China many, many times on missions trips, um, and, it's, and it's, it's part of the culture there, okay? Pastors, they don't do any work in the sense that they don't clean tables. Uh, they, they just, you know, they don't do handwork. And... Uh, First mission trip, now I'm somebody, I'm a hands-on guy, and I believe pastors ought to serve. And, uh, you know, we, we've, uh, I try to always set an example. If I see an overflowing garbage can, I start, I, I, I take, uh, you know, get rid of it and try to set an example. And I try to, and I've had, had past, past full-time seven, I say, why don't you set the example, follow what I'm trying to do here. And, and, what we're, and I want the people to catch it here, okay? But, you know, when first time some pastors saw me do that, they said, uh, whoa, you know, uh, pastors don't do that kind of thing. And I said, well, I said, you know, how are you going to get your people? Learn? I mean, I'm glad your people are doing things, but, you know, I think you, you know, you're supposed to have a faith that people follow. And that was kind of a new, new idea to them there. But in that time, uh, the churches had an inconsistent practice. And so the servants of God had to be bivocational. Listen to me tonight. I'm going to tell you some statistics. 
I don't pay attention to these things. I'm just getting you for the message. I don't pay attention to stuff. Brother Chapel and men like that are friends of mine. They do, but, and they, they've taught on this. But um, there are various evangelical uh, statistical reports that over the years have raised an awareness of the financial duress pastors and paid staff members deal with. Every month, a minimum, every month, a minimum of 1,500 pastors quit the ministry. If you think about that for a minute, 1,500 a month, it's 18,000 a year. It's for various reasons. They say close, and I, and I, I like to validate this number, so I don't, I, don't, I don't put a lot of stock in this, this statistic, but they say, and, and several sources say this, close to half of pastors' marriages end in divorce. That's pretty sad. They say 80% of pastors, 84% of pastors' wives feel ungrateful and discouraged in ministry. I think a lot of that is because of how things operate in the church. 50% of the pastors would leave ministry if they had another way of making a living. 80% of Bible school or seminary graduates who enter ministry, listen to this, 80% of them leave within the first five years that they're in ministry. They say 70% of pastors admit to finding depression. Some internalized, some externalized. 70% of pastors say the only time they read their Bible is when they're preparing to study. I find that really difficult because the average, these average pastors only preach once a week, so I find that pretty hard, hard to comprehend there. 80% of pastors' wives feel their spouse is overworked. I don't know how to quantify that. I do know this. If you're in Bible college, you better, you better come out to work. And if you married a preacher... You better expect that it's like a doctor. He's on call 24-7. of wives, pastors' wives, wish their spouses would quit the ministry. Now, brother, sister, Christ, those are very alarming and burdensome statistics. I want to say this, is that we deal with the problem Paul was dealing with. I want to say on an up, uh, on, on a, on a up note. First, Heritage Baptist Church is a, is a joy to serve. The people are a joy to serve. It's a biblical church that is a joy to serve. Does it have its challenges? Yes. Does it have, does it have people that can get under your skin? Yes. But is it a joy to serve? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes, it's a joy to serve. Secondly, the deacons on behalf of the church, the serving deacons we've had over the years that have been with me, over the years have been a joy to serve with. They've been a help. And honestly, it's been better to me than I'll ever deserve. And then one day when I stand before Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell the Lord, Lord, they did better for me than I'll ever deserve. Third, we must remember that there are a lot of things that are done correctly in this church that can easily be taken for granted and not realize there are many churches and pastors who struggle. The deacons will tell you there have been occasions in the past when I found out about a church that's struggling or situation at hand, we've had our monthly meetings, and I'll say they're waiting for me to give a, a, just to, to share some things. 
And, and, and back in, there have been times when I say, hey, listen, there's a pastor, and I'll tell him the name, tell him the situation. And I say, look, guys, I feel led of the Lord. We need to send X amount of money to help them. Or a missionary right here at this situation, this is what they didn't ask for it. They didn't beg for it. But I feel we ought to do that. I believe God brought it across my attention. We're going to do that. And I've done that, and I'll continue to do that because God has blessed us with resources. We ought to do those kind of things, okay? Now, let's get back to Paul. I say all that to tell you this. Heritage Baptist Church was not in the category of the church that Corinth is. But I'm going to tell you something tonight. It can fall into that very quickly. A change in leadership, a change in attitude, a change in pastor, a change in philosophy. I'm going to tell you this tonight. You listen to me this thing because I'm going to, I, I just blow the whistle on the wolves. Amen? There are some, there are some, because the Bible speaks about that, that are wolves in sheep's clothing. And they don't agree with everything that goes on, and if they have their way, they're going to change some things philosophically. And I'm going to tell you, there's some things you better realize. When you morph the church into looking like a business, and you don't exercise faith, and you morph the church and becoming, we're going we're gonna to deal with it the hard way and not the biblical way. I'm going to tell you what, God is going to write Ichabod all over that church. Paul was stating here, and I'm just telling you the problem. Paul was stating in this passage, he had a right to the church taking care of him, compensating him, but he chose not to take it. He chose not to take it. He's exercising Christian liberty to teach them a principle there. Now, we've seen the privilege. We see the problem quickly. Notice the principle. Paul lays down five biblical reasons. Write this down, especially men. Five biblical reasons. Five biblical reasons why the church is supposed to take care of their pastor and take care of the full-time servants of God. Why the church is supposed to do this? Number one, he said in verses 1 to 6, it's because of his apostleship. His apostleship was a calling of God. He was not to do anything else except devote himself full-time to the winning of souls, the discipling of men, planting churches, building leaders. One of my favorite chapters of Scripture is Acts chapter 14. Because in Acts chapter 14, Paul gives us the gamut of everything that you're supposed to do in ministry there. He said in verse 1, you are my work in the Lord. He said in verse 2, they were the seal of his apostleship. As their pastor, he had the, when he was their pastor for 18 months, he had the right to devote himself into laboring in the word and doctrine and to the entire care of the church. Paul, as we read this passage of Scripture, he said in verse 6, Now I have the power and right, Barnabas and I, we, we have the power and right to forbear working. He said, me and the other men, we have the power, and Silas was an apostle, we have the power and right to forbear working. Paul gave up this right. We'll talk about it in a minute. But the first reason was his apostleship. The churches had the responsibility of caring for the needs of the apostles. Secondly, the second biblical reason, look at verse 7. The second biblical reason is the nature of the work and reward, the correlation work and reward. Look at verse 7. Who goes to war? Who goes to war any time 
at his own charge. In other words, a nation, a country, inducts a man into service, to serve in the military. It's presumed they're going to give him a stipend, a wage. He's not going to go there at his own expense. That's what he's saying there. Who goes to warfare at his own expense? If he's going in, he's now under the employ of that country. Common sense. Work and reward. Notice another one. Who plants a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Okay. Uh, those who plant a vineyard, they get to enjoy the first fruits. I think, I think we just preached on that the other day on, from Isaiah, and it'll come up again this week in Isaiah 28. He gets first picking of the initial harvest. He gets to eat it. Oh, here's another one. Who feeds a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Hey, remember the story about David in 1 Samuel 25, David and Abel? How many of you remember that story there? It was a time of sheep sharing. Remember that? David and his men were hungry. He had 600 hungry men. That's a lot of men, amen, you know? And uh, they said, hey, there's a man here. Look at all the flocks of sheep. Let's, uh, we'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a guard. We'll guard over his sheep while they're, where they're, they're sharing it. We'll protect them. They, they'll see us there. They've already seen us. They know we're protecting them from anybody coming and harming them. And they know automatically it was just part of their, their culture that they're going to provide us something. And so they, he sent one, a couple of his men over to Nabal and said, hey, we've taken good care of watch your sheep. Can you give us a couple of a sheep that we can feed our men with and take care of us, some milk and so forth? And Nabal was very crude and ugly. And he said, I'm not going to take care of you. Why should I? Who are you? But Nabal knew what the responsibility was. And, here, and Paul's talking about that. He says, who feedeth the flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? It was right for anyone who took care of the flock. They get to drink the milk. They get to care from that, from the goats and, and from the sheep there. Okay. So, and then he goes on later on. Notice a third principle. Second principle is the, is the relation of work and reward. Third principle is found in verses 8 to 11. In verses 8 to 11, we find the Old Testament, Old Testament principle laid down by Moses. And you'll find it in verse 9. Uh, look what he says, actually, here in verse 8. Say I these things as a man? He says, am I saying this independent scripture? Absolutely not. He says, say I these things as a man. By the way, Paul was a Baptist, by the way. Let me just say that to you tonight. He quoted, every, he quoted and backed everything with the Bible. He says, or saith not the law the same also. Now, Paul says, let's go back to what the law says. Now, look at verse 8. Verse 9, excuse me. In verse 9, he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4. Now, Deuteronomy 25.4, it says this. For it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Okay, here's a man plowing the fields. He's working the fields. He's treading down the stalks of corn. An oxen was allowed to stop if it got hungry and to munch on the corn. And the man who is doing the harvesting, basically, he stands behind the plow, or whatever the instrument is, the, uh, the, the, the plowing instrument, the harvesting instrument, and he waits till the ox is done eating. To muzzle the ox was considered uncouth and cruel. And so Paul gives them something that was very natural for them. They look at verse, verse 9 again. He says, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the cord. Look at the question he asks. Does God take care for oxen? I mean, this is how good God is. He says, God is so loving, kind. In the law of nature, God even takes care of the oxen while we're doing our work. And you know this principle is so powerful? If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, we're not going to go there. If you go there, Paul repeats it again in teaching the church at Ephesus specifically to care for the pastor there. Now, notice something else. 
He said in verse 10, Or saith it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of them. In other words, he says, it's written in the, New, in the Old Testament that when, he, when one is plowing, he's looking forward to what, what the, the fruit of that. He's looking forward to partake of that. He could, uh, uh, the laborer is a partaker of the reward there. And Paul said in verse 11, he's, he's validating the importance of a church. I'm not, by the way, let me give this disclaimer. I'm not preaching this for me. It's nothing to do for me. I'm telling you, it's the church. It's a principle of the church. People get nervous preaching about money. You don't get, pre- you don't get nervous talking about your investments when you make money. You don't, have, you don't have problems with that. Come on. This is the church of the living God. By the way, any money we have is his money, is it not? He says, if we have sown unto you spiritual things. Now, who's the we? Paul and his team. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, look what he says here. Is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Now, Paul could have stopped right there. I mean, I'll tell you what right now. He reached into his quiver. He took out some fiery arrows. He aimed it with his bow, and he shot it right into their hearts. Because he's already given three principles that they already knew about. They'd been taught before. Three Bible principles that God says why they're to take the church is to take financial responsibility in a generous way, in a loving way, and taking care of the full-time preacher of their, uh, of their church, their pastor, and so forth there. And he's just said here, look at if we've shown you spiritual things, is it a great thing for us to reap your car in other words, for you to take care of us? Notice a fourth thing. Fourth principle. Look at verse 13. Now he's, now he's getting really down to business here. Get down here to verse 13. Do you not know, there he is again, don't you know, that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Now, when he said that, those Jews there that made up the, Jew, the, the church of Corinth, man, that hit home because now Paul is going over a litany of verses, and I think those are in your notes here, but a number of verses, which I don't have time to get into tonight, from Leviticus and verses from Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and basically talking about the, the, for all the different offerings. So for instance, the meat, the meat offering, part of the meat offering stayed with the priest. He would offer some of it, and that which was not burnt, he got to eat that. A part of the peace offering, the priest got to eat. Part of the trespass offering, the priest got to eat. Uh, the Levite, they were supposed to take care of the Levites. That's found in Deuteronomy 18.1. They have no part or inheritance with Israel. They were to eat. The Bible says this in Deuteronomy 18.1. They shall eat of the offering the Lord made by fire and his inheritance. And so when we look at that, listen, the priests were well taken care of because of the fact they had the continuous offering. Now watch this. The Jews, everybody knew, the Jews were fastidious and loyal and, and faithful and whether they liked it or not, they came and participated in those offerings. You ought to read through Leviticus, those first nine chapters again, and read about all the commands God gave. He, they were faithful in their giving. That's how the priest, in fact, the priests had more they needed to do. That's why Eli, Eli, the Bible says in, in 1 Samuel, man, Eli has so much meat, he looked like a cow. Excuse me, amen? Those old boys were big. Because all they ate was meat and bread. I'm not making light of it. I'm just saying those Jews knew part of the meal offering, part of the peace offering, part of the trespass offering, and sometimes a trespass offering for another person. 
portions went to the priests. The priests were never supposed to lack for food as long as the people of God were doing their part. That's why you read, read in Chronicles and 2 Kings, but all those priests who served the Lord, you know why? They had so many offerings because, man, there were a lot of mouths to feed. They, they had a lot of offerings to take care of, and they had a lot, they had a lot of priests to take care of. Their, their, and, and then when Nehemiah comes along and he reinstates all that, I mean, they're making sure these guys are being taken care of. And Paul cites a principle. Look at verse, look, look at it again, verse 13. He, said, uh, he says, he talked about the holy things of the temple. And he says, they that wage the altar are partakers with the altar. Then notice verse 14. The fifth reason is because the Lord ordained it. I said because the Lord ordained it. Even so as the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live in the gospel. Now Matthew 10.10, 10, he said, Nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet says, For the workman is worthy of his meat. Luke 10, verses 7 and 8. In the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his hire, going off from house to house. And whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. We see the privilege. We see the problem. We see the priority. Paul stated here the priority. Churches, he gave five biblical reasons why they take care of it. Now notice the practice. Look at verses 15 to 19. Paul has now validated he had every right to receive support. He validated for the full-time pastors there, the full-time pastors there serving at Corinth, he had every right to receive their support. But now remember, Paul wrote this for two reasons. One is to give them instruction about the financial responsibility of a church and caring for its ministers. But secondly, he wrote this because he's continuing where he left off in chapter 8 about the exercise of Christian liberty. Now, Paul, basically I'm going to get to go through this real quick. Paul was saying, I have every right to receive it, but I'm not going to take it. I'm exercising my liberty to say no. And he said, and the reason why is because there were charlatans and false teachers of that day who took advantage of people. They were taking a prey on the flock of God. They did, it, they did it to take financial advantage. And Paul just felt like he didn't want to be a burden. He didn't, want to be a, he didn't want to be a stigma to the gospel. He wanted to make sure they knew that the gospel was free and that he wasn't charging for the gospel. I've heard preachers have been around. If I don't get an honor in for preaching this place, I'm, they, they stiff me for that. I'm just going to go on. Listen, I preach in places where they didn't give honorariums, and that's fine. And there are places where they did. It didn't matter either way. The gospel's free. I come as a servant of God. God takes care of all those things. I preach in places. Places where I had to pay my own airfare. I preach at places where I have to pay. I have to pay my own hotel expenses, and I've had to rent my own car. Things of that nature was actually a loss to me. Business-wise, it was a bad investment. Spiritually, it was a great investment because God gave revival those places I preached at, and I'll do it again, and again. I've paid for guys to go with me to do that. Paul said he had every right to receive support, but he exercised his liberty not to do so. Look at verse 15. He said in verse 14, Even so as the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live the gospel. But I've used none of these things. Wow. That's why he was a great man of God. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done to me. He says, I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I'm not asking for an offering for you. By the way, who gave him an offering when he's out there? Church at Philippi. He said, for it was better for me to die 
than that any man should make my glory void. Now, here's what Paul's going to tell you. He speaks about the glory of the gospel. Look at verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. He says, there's nothing, I don't get any glory out of this. He says, the glory belongs to God. And what he's saying is, this is why our theme under this series is God glorified. He's saying that in the giving, God should be glorified. And in the receiving or the decision not to receive, God is glorified. Now, Paul said this in verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Now that's the attitude a preacher that's called into the ministry should have. If I, he's, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe is me if I don't have a place to preach. Woe is me if I don't have a message to preach. Woe is me if I'm not preaching God's word. He said necessity is laid upon me. I'm not doing it for the money. I'm not doing it to pay my bills. No, I'm not doing it for any of those reasons. If it comes, praise God for that. If he says, I'm not doing that, I've chosen not to exercise my right. Now, I'm going to give you a statement here tonight. Someone said this. I have the right to exercise my liberty, but I do not have the liberty to exercise my rights. That's a good statement. I have, the liber- I have the liberty, the right to exercise my liberty, but I have the liberty to exercise my rights. And Paul was saying here, the preaching of the gospel is for the glory of God. He preached it out of necessity. He said, woe is me if I preached out the gospel. He was saying, if I'd rather die if I cannot preach the gospel. And then it was verse 17. He said, for if I do this thing willingly, and he did, I have a reward. God's going to take care of me, he said. But if I do it against my will... There's a dispensation of the gospel that's committed to you. What's he saying there, okay? Number one, I preach the gospel out of necessity. Woe is me if I preach out of the gospel. And he says, and when I preach willingly, there's a reward. But if I do it unwillingly, why? Guess what? Even if I don't feel like I want to, there's a stewardship response to me. That's what the word dispensation means. And he said, there's a steward. Listen, we have a, we are, whether you feel like it or not, you have a stewardship responsibility to get the gospel out. I don't feel like going. You go anyway because you have a stewardship responsibility. He's telling them here in all this. He said in verse 18, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel Christ without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Hey, let me tell you something. I'm done. I'm almost done. Did you know most churches... Did you know most churches, and most of them are struggling, pastors charge their, the people that come to them to do their weddings, do their funerals, all these other things. I mean, it's, just, it's, like, it's like a lawyer. If somebody comes to me, they said, would you do my, my wedding? I'm glad of your, your wedding, and I do it. I don't ask for anything. I don't want anything. Would you do my funeral? I'd be glad to do your funeral, but I don't want anything, and you don't need to do anything. If you give me something, I'm going to put it back in the offering. Why is it going back to the Lord? Paul's saying the same thing. Paul's saying the same thing. My friends ask me, 
my preacher friend, would you come preach for me? I'd be glad. I was glad to, you know, we're, we're going to have this summer series, and we're waiting for uh, these, these pre preaching pre-recordings coming. But one of my preacher friends said, preacher, he said, you don't have to send me an honor. I'm going to send them honorariums from our church. But I said, I'm, he said, you don't have to send me anything. I, I want to do it because I'm your friend. And I have the same attitude. I'll do it. I'll preach because I'm your friend. I'll, I'll come. Because I got a preacher who wants me to do a worker's training for him. Uh, I don't know if he'll still be on because we got COVID-19 going on. But I'm, I, 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 told, I said, I'll come do it for free for you, brother, just to help you. I want to help a young preacher out. And I preach out. Little I preach out. Preachers ask me, would you sit down with my men? Would you help teach my men? These things. They don't know what they're supposed to tell them. They get some book there, order in the church, something like that, which are greatly written books to help them, but they're struggling. Church, I close with the priority. Look at verse 14. Even so, this is the priority, we're done. Has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel? One of these sermons, I, I'll, I'll talk more about the policies, what we do, just so you know. But I want to encourage our members, and most of you watching tonight are core members of the church. When you're giving to the Lord... You're giving so that you're reaping spiritual things. I'm not going to have a bunch of junk around the church. I'm sorry. Not going to have that. I'm all business about the spiritual things of God when you come here. That's what you should be getting. For some people, church is a carnival, it's not a carnival. If you're not a tither, one of the greatest joys of tithing is that you, when you're tithing, you are participating in the financial rewards and the spiritual rewards of how God blesses your soul. That's what he's doing. It's a joy to give. Every Christian needs a consistent pattern of tithing because that is our, our sum total, our responsibility Hey, let me say this tonight. Some of you just graduated from college and you have full-time jobs. If you have not learned to do so, I encourage you, beginning with the next paycheck, which should be the end of this month for all of you, you ought to tithe. And tithe off the gross, not off the net. You ought to tithe. And I'll tell you, that attitude where, you know, I'll do it when I feel like it. Listen, you better follow 1 Corinthians 16 upon the first day of the week. Systematic. As you're, as you're remunerated, as you're compensated. You got a job, you ought to be a tither. You got a financial gain, you ought to be a tither. And then one of my good friends in church, whenever they've had a major gain, Man, they put, that, they put the tithe off that right into the church. It's come at 
critical. And not just one. I'm thinking several friends like that in the church. Just love God. Paul took most of 1 Corinthians 9 to ingrain the responsibility of church. And listen, you say, well, man, that's, that's, listen, it all has to do with our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Amen. Be a tither. Don't stop on your building giving. I'm going to say something once we get back in-person services about this. Don't stop on faith promise missions. Don't stop at that. Don't let all the myriad of things going on in your life right now create myriads of confusion. Be faithful to God. Be there. Tithe. Give your offerings. Love God. And you know what? I can testify to this. God takes care of everything else in between. That's why he gave us Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God is righteous, and all these things shall be added unto you. God's going to take care of all that. He really does. He really does. Let's promote the gospel. Let's make sure whenever we talk about the gospel endeavor, we do not hesitate to say, what do we need to do to go forward? I'll tell you what. I'll close this. Our church has been so good. I made a plea for the HBC Cares COVID-19. You didn't, you're not even here physically. And the number of you, I mean, it's a large number of you who gave. And you kept on giving. And some gave with matching giving. <laughs> Man, that humbles me that you love the gospel enough to do that. This, again, this morning, I was praying over several of the names of the people we've met on that we're, we're harvesting, we're, we're trying to work, nurture these relationships. We're praying for God to give us a harvest of souls from this. Please take care of your church. Please be good to your church. Follow what Paul said here. Vineyards, oxen, plowing, they all have one thing in common. They point to work and reward. May God bless you in your endeavors. May you serve him with all your heart. May God help you to thrive in your job where he's placed you as we try to take care of the work of the Lord.